August Faltigadian Clare. Hello and welcome to Heart to Heart, a podcast where we chat about Irish vernacular buildings, past, present, and future with people who love them and look after them. I'm Roisin. And I'm Olivia. And we are committee members of the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings in Ireland, or SBAB as it's also known. This is episode six of a 10-part series where we talk to different people working in the area of vernacular buildings in Ireland, as well as those who are passionate about conserving them. This is our third season running this podcast, and in this episode, we talk to John Plunkett, Rory Golligan, and Fergal McGurl about how they carried out a project to restore a cobbled farmyard in County Mead. We learn about the importance of proper on-site research when carrying out a restoration project and the untold value of regular maintenance of vernacular buildings, as well as maintaining the traditional use of vernacular farm buildings and structures. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to the podcast to Fergal McGurl, Rory Galligan and John Plunkett. Um, you're here this evening to talk about a beautiful project um, on a historic farmyard in County Mead. Fergal, you're a conservation architect with almost uh, 30 years of experience and you're based in Dublin. Rory, you are the director of Rock Road Stone Company, which is a contracting company specialising in restoration works uh, based in County Mead. And John, you are the eldest son of the Plunkett family who has taken an interest in restoring the family farm. Could you tell us, each one of you, in a nutshell, a bit about your background and how you got together um, to work on this project, please? Thanks. Um, thanks, Olivia. Um, yeah, John, John approached me uh, earlier last year and he had applied for a... Um, Gloss to traditional farm buildings grant to reinstate the cobbles in, in, in the in the farmyard. I think John had done some previous work that I wasn't involved in to, in terms of roofing and so on. Um, I had done some work under a similar previous scheme of about 10 years ago. Uh, I think it was called the rep scheme at the time, um, up in Loud. So I was kind of familiar with the with the type of um type of work that it was. Yeah, so John John had at that stage, I think, had grant approval from uh, the Heritage Council for the works. In principle, so we had to agree sort of um, a method statement and so on. So at that point, I, I became involved in the project and um, I took John's brief and we started to look at how 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 we would approach it and, and so on. And we started to liaise with the, uh, the Heritage Council. Pretty good. Uh, John, maybe do you want to give us a bit of a background about how you got here and ended up sort of initiating this project? Yeah, um, as Fergal has mentioned there, we previously carried out some restoration works um to, in the courtyard to uh, some roofs um and at that stage that's that was in 2018 and i mean and it was very helpful back in 2018 and throughout this project last year she kind of planted a seed in our head between myself and my dad maliki that we could potentially uh, receive a, a, um, a second uh, element of the grant to reinstate the cobblestones in the yard, which was there historically and over the years were removed to wear and tear and heavy machinery. And even by some probably mismanagement by ourselves, by concrete and over portions of the yard and stuff like that. Um, so in that sense, then uh, the traditional farm building scheme grant opened in spring 22. Um, and we started doing some preliminary work myself and my dad in terms of uh, planning and trying to um, appoint a conservation architect. And it was at that stage where I, we actually spoke with Rory 
her through the grapevine and Rory was a specialist in, 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 in that type of work in conservation. And Rory had mentioned that uh, he was had worked with Fergal on previous occasions as a conservation architect overseeing projects and highly recommended them to us. So we put all our trust in Rory anyway, and uh, I got in touch with Fergal and I asked him to come down and visit the, the courtyard and we took it from there. And uh, Rory came on board, gave us a quotation and said he was very keen to do the work because it's very close to where Rory grew up. He is only mm. from three miles up the road, so a lot of local interest in it. And um, he would have been cycling a bike, I'd say, around our roads when he was a young fellow and all the rest of it. So uh, in that sense, it was a very localised project. And even though Fergal obviously is from, from up the Dublin side, he, um, you know, it's not far down the road on the motorway, and he was able to link it in with another job and he was doing in the locality. So from that sense, it, it worked very well that we were all able to be on site at, at the relevant times, and in, in, especially in the pre-planning and with the negotiations with the Heritage Council, which were a little more tedious than we would have expected uh, at the outset. We initially, the three of us, myself, uh, Rory and Fergal came up with it, an initial plan of uh, what we were going to do in terms of reinstating the yard and budget was a big factor considering the yard is about 350 square metres and you know it would be a big project to take on to do a lot of it so we were going to split it up and just do half of it split the yard in half and just do the half that's closest to the closest to the residence the traditional farmhouse yeah and that's where Rory came in then and prepared the method statement and the description of works. And uh, or Fergal came in and prepared the method statement and description of works. And Rory would have prepared a sample of what type of work we were going to do. And we made that submission to the Heritage Council, but it wasn't to their satisfactory liking in terms of what was in the yard historically. Mm. And it required a lot of further excavation of the existing yard to extract what was there and to put, a, it put that back in a picture and in a plan of how that should be reinstated. And I think Fergal, you should probably come in there now and, and take it from there in terms of the professional end of it and uh, how the orig original cobbles were there and what the plan was to put them back. I suppose the, the initial method statement that we did um, was based on a number of assumptions because the, 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 the farmyard was concreted in a large large part of the area of it. Um, so we, they, they asked us, in fairness to them, they, they pushed us to kind of, you know, come up with a more evidence-based approach and to do more sort of opening up. So we excavated, I think, most of the concrete. I suppose the thinking was, look, let, let's get the concrete out of it and then we can see exactly what we're dealing with. So when the concrete was taken out, it gave us a lot of clues as to the original detailing of the, of the, of the, of the yard. Um, like, for example, there was a couple of, couple of extend cobbles around sort of thresholds which gave us levels and then when we broke out the concrete and turned it upside down you, you had almost like a, it was almost like archaeology you had a, you had a perfect mm. impression of the pattern of the cobbles in terms of their you know size and spacing and all that kind of thing so they were right um to i think push us to 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 study it a bit more more carefully um there was also i think from taking the concrete up and, and looking at it in, in more detail there was um evidence of kind of like an, an, an edging um, 
uh, it was offset about, I can't remember, but three metres off, off the, the face of the buildings. But there was an evidence of thinner stones that formed some sort of a, uh, some sort of an edging. So at that point, we decided to change the layout from um, John's original idea was to, you know, do the section closest to the house to maybe, I guess, to, to create a setting for the house and so on. And uh, we changed it to creating a sort of a border edging around the, the, the buildings, which I think, you know, in the photographs, it, it sort of frames the... Um, the house is a modern house, but the the I suppose by by putting the cobbles, um, by edging the buildings, as you're creating a, a better sort of border or setting or background for the for the for the traditional buildings, which is what the trust of the, of the grand scheme is. I have a lot of questions coming out of that one, but I think we'll we'll circle back there and go to Rory and maybe get a bit of your background and how it is. I know, like for example, that you grew up in the area and how it is that you you came to take on this project or what it was for you. Um, well, thank you. Um... Yeah, as the guy said, um, I'm from the same area as John. I wouldn't be surprised if we played football against each other as kids. And um, when John and Fergal approached me about doing this, considering the fact that we knew Fergal from before and that I was from the same area as John, and even just looking at the building and what he was trying to do with it, it, it was something that I was very keen uh, to get involved in. Um, as the guy said, Originally, we were talking about doing one thing. Um, initially, we were talking about uh, binding the the cobbles in like a lime mortar. And uh, mm -hmm. as as the process went on with the Heritage Council and and looking and studying at what was there before, uh, that there was twists and turns to that. But it was a very interesting process, and and I'm glad it went the way that it did. Um, in the overall scheme of things. Um, so like uh, our background is we, we do all sorts of masonry works, um, uh, but we do specialise as well in, in conservation stuff um, on all on all sizes of projects. So um, it was especially nice on this one to be involved in something local and, and dealing with vernacular buildings. Had you worked previously on cobble farmyards? Uh, I we have uh, before my time to be honest in the company, but um, we have done cobble projects, um, different types of ones, either in a cement bound mortar or a lime bound mortar. This is my first time dealing and uh, doing it uh, unbound, um, and like we've done stuff using the likes of the uh, Dublin cobbles, the basalt cobbles for. DC, DC, DCC and OPW, um, as well as the, the round kind of field stones um, in private and commercial settings. Yeah. Yeah, I'll just follow on. There's an interesting point about the, about the, 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 the binding of the cobbles. Originally, we had thought about doing um, a bound surface like what Rory is describing, where it would be in, in a, a hydraulic lime um, uh, binder. Uh, the, the Hearst Council again pushed us to sort of think about it, looking at it traditionally in terms of, um, uh, you know, using sort of um, a, a natural binder. There, there was a reference given to Roth House in Kilkenny, um, where, the, where I think the cobbles were set into um, a marl clay. So they're, they're, they were suggesting that they'd be bedded or, or, or kind of whacked into a marl clay. But there was evidence in the yard that there was there was no there was evidence in the yard that the um the the cobbles were set into a loose uh, gravel and that part of the country around Carnaross it, it's not really marl country it's more I think the guys will, the guys will explain it probably better but as far as I understand there's a thin covering a topsoil with um gravel gravel subsoil so um 
again, we, I suppose we're, we're adapting what the thinking was to, to the local conditions in terms of the the the, the geology and what the what the local um, subsoil conditions were, and what typically they would have used in a vernacular situation. They wouldn't have imported clay or soil from somewhere else. Yeah, that was that was one question I wanted to bring up here. Was was it known what the traditional farmyards would have been like um, that it was common for them to be in the gravel? Was it it's sort of local knowledge or was it a complete surprise to, I guess, to you, John or Rory? Had you heard of it before in that area? Yeah. Um, see, the, as there was existing cobbles still there, when we extracted them, the binding surface underneath was like a washed down gravel. So over time, the idea of the, the gravel is that it's free draining. So with rain, when the rain falls, it just drains through the cobbles and down down through the subsoil. Um, so obviously over time, if any aggregates that's there will get washed, you know, they'll get washed sub uh, under the cobble. Uh, so that's what happened when we extracted them. Um, and as Fergal mentioned, when we removed the concrete, it had like a fossil feature. And in the bed of that fossil then that was still on the ground was just a, a type of gravel or a sand and gravel kind of local to what what's actually in in the ground in the area. We've a very shallow soil in you know North County Mead. It's you have a layer top soil, uh, maybe six inches at most, and underneath that your your sand and gravel or essentially solid rock at a very sh- at a very shallow depth. Mm. In different parts of the country, you've clay or uh, peat. All the different soil structures, but that's mm-hmm. the one in North County Mead that's predominantly uh, a gravel-based soil. Um, in traditional farmyard structures like the courtyard, the, we're very lucky to have. Uh, from listening to the older generations, and that's even a generation older than my father, uh, they would all remember the old yard as it was, and mm. inside the the sheds inside the courtyard, all the flooring in them was a cobbled flooring. Now, over time, they've been modernised and replaced with a concrete flooring. But historically, what you would have had there 100 years ago was a cobbled flooring in all inside the sheds, and then that cobble border, which we have reinstated outside. Mm-hmm. The sheds themselves all had a different feature. So you had a hay barn for your hay, a straw barn for your straw, a cow barn or a cow buyer as, as they're sometimes known, a pig sty or a pig shed, uh, and they need a calf house for your cows. And and, and um, there was a, a, a roof house for root vegetables and then mm. um, a, like a tim or a turf or a, or a timber shed for the firewood. Um, and the uh, operation of the yard would have been all the dung that was created by the animals was pegged out in the middle of the yard and left in a dung stead in the middle of the yard. Okay, so yeah. in the middle of the yard, you you didn't really have you just had your like a stone yard surface, uh, and the idea of that was well that when the rains and the dung it just kind of absorbs the rain into the ground itself, which is not very environmentally friendly in in today's world. But that's that's the way it was historically, and uh, I'll probably unfortunately there's probably not enough of the older generation around to, that have recited that or put it down enough in black and white. Uh, and I would imagine there's very little photography of that time and of that typical scenario, which is a pity. Mm. 
you seem to know an awful lot about it. And I, I'm wondering where did you like, where did you, were you talking to specific people to sort of get this information? Is this just things that you would have known in the family or have you been doing a bit of research yourself? Yeah, well, my father Maliki is very interested in history. And um, in about 25 years ago, he'd done a family history of his own mm-hmm. family and would have, you know, listened to the stories of the, of the people of the generations before him. Mm. Um, so he'd have a lot of that information, which he's subsequently passed on to myself. Very good. Yeah, no, there would, there's not many of that generation of people that really are around anymore that remember. There's a few locally um, and a few that would are very close to home that would remember being up in, in, in the yard as it were back in the day. We cock and hay back in the 40s and 50s. And, you know, they, they remember the setting. And we had an open evening in the yard there back just before Christmas, just to invite the local people up. And some of them older people were there and they were delighted to see it as their young memory had it, you know. That's so heartwarming. I lo- it's a lovely, I love that as well, that it's not, you didn't just... Uh, reinstate this farmyard for you know for yourself and for your family so that you can benefit but it actually benefits like the whole community that it, it sort of brings up all these memories and this history and sort of creates this local ties it's it's really fantastic and the other um, the other thing that we're very lucky that it's been in the family for hundreds and hundreds of years so um, you know it's not like this, I don't know I wouldn't disrespect anyone else where maybe mm. it's come in with a, a blank checkbook and is able to you know, put back a place to where it once was. And there's no, they don't, and no disrespect, but there's no connection mm. to what it was like. But we're very lucky that we're able to keep the connection, you know. Yeah, I think that's, it is particularly special. And it's, it's really, uh, I think this is one of the great things about the Gloss game is you see so many of these sort of farmyards, which were really crucial to, to families and family history, like livelihoods were, were made out of it for generations. And it's just lovely that it gives people the opportunity to, get in touch with that kind of personal family history in a way by by going back and and doing this work absolutely yeah you already replied and said that the army art has always been in your family so that is a question that has been answered and um, mm-hmm. i was more curious about these type of farmyards as i was saying before this particular c-shape the fact that am i wrong or is it on a hill so kind of yeah. like the buildings are sloping down a little bit and the and the courtyard is, is sloping down a little bit. And um this question is for the three of you. Um whoever knows the answer, is that a typical building for Irish farmyards? Like we're all used to the a farmyard with three or four buildings that are kind of in a square shape, a square arrangement, but with this sort of semicircular, like a crescent shape is, is not really that typical or personally I've never seen it and uh, not even in, in the Midlands. Um, I, don't, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it is something that is just peculiar to that. Imagine the more traditional type is it the rectangular type that you, you've mentioned, Livia. Um, I can't say off the top of my head that I know of another one that's in the crescent shape um, but I'm sure there is throughout the country. Maybe Fergal, you, you might have more experience. Yeah, if I jump in, I, like I, I'm not an absolute expert on this. I haven't, you know, done a ranging study on it. But 
there's a couple of interesting things about the site. I think one of one of the things is it is it is a sloping site, so the buildings are retained and into the if you like the the the, the slope of the ground. So I'd, I'd hazard to guess, like most farmyards, I think of that period are as you just described, they're like rectangular with different blocks, and that's often what's described in some of the guidance books about you know traditional farmyards and so on. I'd hazard to guess and and think that they may be they 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 cut the buildings into the into the into the topography to form the courtyard at the same level as the house. So they mm-hmm. wanted to form, I guess, a retaining wall effectively. And that retaining wall is kind of, I guess, canted or curved to maybe to give it additional strength or to, you know, obviously a, a, um, a wall that kind of bends um, and, and angles is stronger than a, than a, than a straight wall. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd hazard a guess as to that's where the, the shape came from. Um, but there's an interesting history to the site. We did a little bit of research um, for the, the method statement, and um, I found, found the project fascinating. And one of the things that came out straight away when I talked to John was that his maternal, the, the maternal side of his family have been farming the land since the 1500s. Um, so there's an incredible family history on the site. Um, John produced a, a Griffiths valuation map which showed different members of the family who were interrelated, um, all living together on sort of parcels of land that were all sort of connected or clustered around the farmyard. Um, so it was like, it looked to me like a kind of a family collective who were working together. Um, and as I understand it then, like the, the, the oval-shaped courtyard didn't appear on the Ordnance Survey maps till about, till the 1900 map. So we, we made a guess that it, it was built in the, the late... Um, the late 19th century, uh, after the famine and the 1881 Land Act, as I understand it, there was more consolidation of farms into kind of maybe single owners and so on. So I'd hazard a guess that maybe the family sort of consolidated the farm around that time and maybe the 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 because the, 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 the arrangement of the buildings um, in the farm area changed to the oval-shaped um, configuration that we have today. And I'd hazard a guess that it happened around that time. Okay, thank you. There is a very interesting article about the project on agriland.ie um, and it, it, it explains in quite a detail how the works were carried out and uh, is explaining, it's just to get a little bit more into the nitty gritty of the project, um, that you source a lot of the cobbles locally, that you, you could reuse some of them, not all of them, that you had to clean them and sort them. Um, I, I was just curious about to go into it a little bit, little bit more in detail. Like, did you source things locally? How did you source things locally? Um, when you were using the cobbles, did you turn them around like you would do with a brick just to have a, like the new face to work with? Or were you just getting on with like trying to restore the single face of each cobble, which is I suppose a massive job? <laughs> The other question is, I was going to add to that was whose idea was it uh, to source the material locally? Was that something the Heritage Council suggested or did, did one of you have the, the brainwave to, to look in the nearby fields? Yeah, um, so to, I suppose in, in sourcing the, the cobbles, there was two elements to that. Um, one is that we had uh, an unlimited supply on the farm and two, to source them uh, locally, uh, there was absolutely there was no availability of sourcing them locally, or if you were to source them elsewhere, you're bringing in 
um, a material that's foreign to the local landscape. And that was an ultimate concern, even from the outset, of would we get enough material on the farm, or if we couldn't, could we get enough in the immediate local area uh, that we could complete the, complete the project? Uh, as well, budget, we didn't want to be uh, having to purchase even from locally, if at all possible, as in putting a, an additional cost. And one of the, uh, I suppose, one of the issues when you when you are sourcing cobbles is you have a lot of waste, as we found out as we got through the project. Mm-hmm. So in terms of uh, sourcing the cobbles, we on the farm had a like a stone tip or a, a reek of stone as I would refer refer to it, and what how that arrived at was over the years when we my dad and his grand uncles before that would plough a field. Our landscape is stony, so to put in a crop there, whether it be potatoes or tillage, the stones would have to be manually hand picked off the field. Uh, years ago, it would have been done with a horse and cart, and more recent years. A, a tractor and transport box and manual labour, hands on. And what they would do back in the day was uh, there was this field which became a central point for the stone tip. So no matter where they were ploughing, they would transport the stones to this stone tip and tip them there. And that became a designated uh, dump, really, of stone, essentially. Uh, in later years, when heavier machinery is involved, uh, they were able to extract the rocks. Because it's not just stone, we'd have rocks. We'd plow um, 50 years ago, you'd hit a rock. You just avoid the rock and move around it and keep going on. So you'd have a barren spot in that crop because there's a rock there in the field that can't be extracted. Uh, in Since probably the 80s, there's been uh, JCBs and track machines. So they'd come in extract the rock and then they'll be put in the trailer and tip down in the in the stone tip. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then in other parts of the farm, uh, maybe it wouldn't be cropping, but uh, we'd be reseeding um fields. So uh, putting in a new a new lay of grass seed. And again you have the same problem. So the ground will be ploughed stones again. So in other parts of the farm then stones will just be tipped up at the back of the ditch with the mm-hmm. tractor and transfer ball picked up. By, with, by hand onto a transit box and then tipped over uh, and one of the ditches and that became the designated for that section of the farm, which is tip all the stones there and they're all there. So uh, myself and dad said, well, so look, they've been there long enough now, we might as well try and make a bit of use out of them if we can and hopefully we'll get enough out of it to, that Rory and, and his crew can get enough good cobbles out of it to, uh, to reinstate the yard. So that process involves uh, a digger coming in and uh, myself on a tractor and trailer drawing all the stone that we could find on the farm up close to the yard for four or something. And the heavy material, all the big heavy rock and all that, we were able to take that away with the digger and leave a big pile of small or stone or different size of aggregate, which had to be sorted by hand. Uh, and that process was very, uh, I wouldn't say painstaking because it was actually therapeutic, I would say, but it was very labour intensive. So myself and dad and maybe one or two other 
members of the family. My mum was out for a few days with us, and my brother, anytime we would get him at the weekends, uh, and one of, one of my two my local neighbours, which were very good to us. And really what we done there was just you tip, we tipped the stone up on a concrete yard uh, with the tractor and front loader and scattered them as loose as we could. And then you go down, uh, not that you just, you're on your feet, but you're bent over and you're trying to pick out the good ones into a wheelbarrow and we're taking them away. How do you know it's a good one? Uh, well, you have to pick it up and look and see, is there a good face on it? Is it a full stone, a broken stone? Is not accepted, and that was the criteria Rory gave us at the start. So no broken stone has to be a full round stone with a good, at least one good face on it, and it can't be, you know, like a, a bad edge in it because they have to bed it down. There's no bottom, mm-hmm. so it has to hold its own weight, and it's not going to rock. So it has to be how quite long. Does the good face has to be on the short end, and then you have, you have to have a long enough depth to it? Like a, a small football, essentially. With a good, mm-hmm. one good face on it, that it's, it's not exactly like a sphere, but um, yeah. you know, kind of rectangular. You square. can't have a slab with a good face on, yeah. on the, the edge, yeah. yeah. Okay, if it's anywhere obscure on the bottom, it'll rock when the weight comes on it, and that's never going to work. So uh, we got started probably about a month beforehand, before the, the start date, and a week beforehand. Uh, for three weeks of work, we had very little stone. Um, so wow. then I went back to the drawing board then and said, well, we better go and extract uh, from the stone tips that are along the butts of ditches where the stones have been picked off over the years around the different areas of the farm. And mm-hmm. we better do this fairly quickly or we're going to run out of stone. The lads are going to run out of stone on site and we're going to have a half-finished job. Uh, and at that stage then, we... Yeah, we, we started doing that and we had a lot more success um, because there were the stones we were coming across in, in the stone tips at the, at the bottom of the ditches were of very equal size. Um, and we were able to work really well on that for about two weeks. And that gave us a, a supply that we were well ahead of the lads then um, mm-hmm. coming, coming up through the project. And at the at the, the last week, I suppose, we got a bit tight again and we actually just went into one of our neighbours' farms, uh, which they have a wall that divides our farm and their farm. So we got their consent to see uh, could we pick off the bottom of the wall where stones had fallen down. And mm. we got a couple of bucket of box loads there just to finish it off. Um, and Would that have been a dry stone wall or a, was it yeah, a dry stone wall? wall. Yeah, yeah. Um, so all our... All, most of the boundary on our farm would have a dry stone wall. And mm-hmm. in some areas that's still very exposed. In other areas, there's been hedges planted there for biodiversity reasons and for animal shelter and all that. So the mm-hmm. stone wall is it's probably no longer a dry stone wall because it's kind of been covered over with moss mm. and grass and you know, the hedges under it. But even our own individual own fields, a lot of our fields are divided by an original dry stone wall. Mm. How do they do then, Rory? How did you find their selection? <laughs> in fairness, they did an excellent job because when we were talking about uh, this in the run-up to it, um, John, um, I would say, volunteered to take on the task of, of picking the stone. And 
I was quite happy for him to to, to go that route because I, I know what it's like doing it. It is time consuming and labor intensive. And really the, the quality of the end product is dependent on having the right stones um, for the project. So he, he really did an excellent job and it, it it made life that bit easier when it came to laying the, laying the stones in place because we had the quality stones there at our disposal. And um, it stood to it um, uh, when the time come, came to lay the stuff. Um, I, like as John was saying there, the size of the stones, we were trying to keep them as, as good a quality as possible with a, a relatively level face on them that we could face upwards on them um, to, to, to try and avoid too many humps and bumps and potential trip hazards on the on the paved area when it was being done um the with the the final um detailing on how they were being laid the stones were being butted tightly together it wasn't that there was a mortar joint in between them so really the whole idea was that they were bedded down touching each other on all four sides um and compacted down so that really they were knitted together and they weren't going to move um afterwards it, it was a it was something that I had to get my head around at the time because you would normally be going the opposite way where you'd have a joint in between them that would, you know, give potentially some bit of flexibility um, as opposed to two very, very hard objects side by side. But um, no, it, it worked out well and it was it was testament to the stone that we had at, at our disposal. It sounds a lot more complicated um, and probably more than what you signed up for in the beginning. Did you have did you have any second when they came back and said you had to do this with the gravel? Was it something they had to win you over to or did you see it potentially working? I'm guessing you did because you, you went through with it. It took a, a bit of time to get our heads around the, the process. But to be honest and to be honest, it was down to having Fergal and John on board with it because we were having a continuous conversation about how we were going to do this. And it went through various stages and with the input of the Heritage Council came to the final conclusion. Um, yeah, there was, there was some thought went into it and a little bit of uh, hesitation at the very start. But uh, no, once we got into it, we, we, we were happy with the process. Had you come across this sort of method of bedding cobbles before uh, either Fergal or yourself, Rory, like how did you come up with this first? I know you knew that there, there was gravel used in the bedding, but how did you come to the details of how it was going to be done? Was it just sort of through using your knowledge and saying, we'll figure this out? <laughs> Well, I think Ken, with with the input of the Heritage Council, the the farmyard kind of did tell its own story, and that's mm -hmm. what led us the way we went. Um, uh, as the guy said earlier, though, there was talk of using like a, a subsoil uh, as a bedding medium there, and as John and myself are both from the area, it's just not something that's commonly available mm -hmm. in the area. I, I know from other projects where we were asked to get it, and it's been extremely difficult, and you end up going further afield from the locality to import mm -hmm. this material that's not from the area. Um, and when John did a lot of exploration work on the existing cobbles, we could see clearly what was there before. Um, similar material was still available in the area from local gravel pits. So it kind of reached its own conclusion mm -hmm. um, because of that. 
Very good. Um, I really, like, as Trevor was saying, I think it, it really sounds like the Heritage Council, I know it may have been upset your plans and made it more complicated when you already had this plan in place, but it sounds like doing that little bit of extra digging and exploration really sort of revealed a lot about the farmyard itself, that maybe if you had just done it how you had originally thought, it would have looked well, but you would have missed sort of getting this history of the place, um, which sounds really nice. And like how much of the original cobbles from the yard were you able to reuse? Was there many of them left? Oh, there was. Um, and, and and a lot of them were being stockpiled as it went. Like John explained the process of getting the stones. From my side, I would never have thought there was an alternative but use the stone that was there because mm. it was like for like from what was there before. There was, albeit through a painstaking process, an abundance of stone um, there and it, it, it achieved the required result. And if we had have tried to bring something from outside the area in, it likely would have conflicted with what was there before. So it, it was a no-brainer from my point of view that that's the way it would have been done. Just going back to yourself there, John, we were talking about uh, the dry stone walls and this again with the sorting. Is it something that you would have done would you have done any of this kind of work with the stone on the farm yourself or your father uh, have done any dry stone walling or, or working with the stone that was on, on the yard at any point? No, the dry stone walls, uh, I'd say, are there before even Dad's time. Uh, they're there a very long time. Mm-hmm. And one of the benefits of, of kind of modern technology is an electric fence. And we have an electric fence now uh, surrounding all our dry stone wall boundaries. So in previous years, sheep would have been a nuisance to run up on them and break them down. And now well, we no longer have sheep on the farm, but with an electric fence uh, protecting them, that the cattle aren't able to scratch off them or you know mm-hmm. get up with them or, or run them down. So you will see when you, if you do walk around something, you'll see where, Okay, there's a dip in the wall as you go along. So what what happened there was animals you know, and tore it down. It was never properly put back up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and thankfully now that that's no longer happening. Uh, as I've mentioned, there is on not on dual side, but on one side of a lot of them, there is a, a, a lovely white horn hedge, uh, which is very good for stockproof and, and for shelter for animals and all the rest of it. So, okay, it doesn't expose the character of the stone wall on both sides, but it's still there on, on, on the other side. And um, where uh, we've been in all the environmental schemes in on the farm and end of things for the last good few years, we would have been in REPS, which is a rural environmental, rural environmental protection scheme. Mm-hmm. Uh, when that finished up, we were in GLOSS, which is the green low carbon emission farming. And now we've joined the acres scheme, okay? Uh, and some of the elements of, of them schemes have been you protect your stone, your traditional dry stone walls. Mm-hmm. Okay. So our the onus is on us to make sure that they don't that are never deteriorated, that they're protected from animals. Uh, and that if a storm or anything happens, or you know, if or if a machine or anything were to deteriorate that wall, that you go back 
and rebuild it as a dry stone wall. Now, mm-hmm. I would say that we've never had to do anything with them because they're protecting themselves, but in the event of anything happens or a tree falls in, if there isn't a tree, sometimes it'd be in the field or along the boundary of it, if, or even branches that which would would um, cause damage to that wall that you replace it back to where it was. And yeah. I think that's a very good scheme in terms of protection, the structures and the mm-hmm. historical structures on farm. Sorry for diverging off the point there. I'm a bit of a dry stone wall enthusiast. I will come back to, to the yard. But is it something, this is this is more just out of my own curiosity, is it something like the Dry Stone Walling Association of Ireland, they run workshops for uh, on how to, to rebuild uh, your own dry stone walls. Um, is it something that you think you and your family, after this kind of experience, you, you know, sorting through all that stone, you now know what a good stone is and you know how to, like the, the gist of laying cobbles. I think building them now is a skill and they're very heavy, so I'd like to protect me back. But I would be interested in it. I did see, uh, if you, I'm not sure if you've seen it on Here to the Ground. Mm-hmm. It was an elderly farmer rebuilding the traditional, the dry stone walls on Inish Moor. Oh, Inish Ear. Inish Ear. Yeah. And Paddy. <laughs> I'll take my hat off to him. He's, yeah. Uh, he's plenty of years behind them and he's lifting the boulders that are probably 50, 60 kilos. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, he's making land, which is a very unusual thing. He's picking yeah. the stone off there and, and allowing it to go back into, into grass or uh, flower. And it's, uh, it's a fantastic thing to see. Uh, in terms of ourselves, I, I'd be very interested in, in maintaining them and all of that. Uh, in terms of building them, I don't think I'd take on to do it because I like to see the job go well and I wouldn't like to ruin something that I do to ruin the, make, ruin the rest of it. So, yeah. uh, I, I would encourage going to a workshop if it's something that it is a skill, but I went to a weekend workshop. I spent two days up in Glencullum Kill. It was the very first time I ever went to a dry stone workshop. I have zero stoneworking experience and it took a while. They, they, there's seven basic principles for dry stone walling. And you just, much like this, you have a long stone, you you put the stone in the wall the right way. Same as as, as Rory was saying there with like laying the cobbles. It's, it's not too dissimilar. You're just tying two sides of the wall together. Mm. It was very simple and you just, it's practice. I think the professionals now would, would like anyone to hear saying it was very simple. <laughs> no. <laughs> It's simple principles, uh, and it's, I mean, sure, how did they learn how to build them? You practice yourself. Um, and Patience is a big yeah. thing. Patience. Do you like sorting that stone? <laughs> yeah, I think Fergal will agree with me there, because I gave him a hard time uh, on certain occasions last year when we were running into a bit of difficulty and whatnot, so I know patience would just go out the window, I think. Very good. Um, going back to this lovely uh, cobble yard. Uh, for Rory, could you actually give us a bit of a run through about the process of, of bedding? Because I don't think we haven't really talked about that so far in it. Uh, like mm-hmm. what what was the process you went through and actually putting them, you said about fitting them tight together, but what was the bedding that you did and how do you mm-hmm. finish it? 
Well, with the nature of the yard, there was plenty of evidence there to show us the levels to where, to where it was finishing before, uh, door thresholds. There was this uh, perimeter edging along the um, border of it, which was basically long, flaggy stones laid kind of laid up on their sides and bedded down flush to, to be like nearly a, a glorified curb, just retaining the, the cobbled area back. Um, the existing ground, because it had been used over hundreds of years was well compacted so um it was simply a case of scraping off and taking off the old cobbles and then we were laying down a layer of uh, pea gravel as a bedding material um obviously with the nature of the stones being various sizes they weren't all the same so the the bedding was kind of laid deep enough that it gave a bit of a tolerance when it was uh, when we were placing the stones on it but not too deep that uh, you'd be afraid that it would sink afterwards. Um, and then just it was a case of starting at one point and laying one stone and getting it that it had a nice level top and laying the next one beside it and so on and so on and, and beating them down to so that they were um, fixed in place and, uh, and weren't moving. Um, we didn't run the likes of a whacker over it afterwards for fear of actually damaging them. Um, mm. There was a lot of time went into beating them in with rubber mallets that they were well locked into position. And um, I, I, I believe that uh, they're all still in the same position as they were then. So um seemed to have worked out successfully. Um, the, the edging perimeter uh, strip um, was laid to, to form the boundary um, along the, or the border along the edge of it. And, as I said, like the the yard does run from a high point down to a low point, but um, because of the size of the cobbles, we were able to follow the contours of the yard and uh, achieve the levels where they needed to meet at the border and in at the doors. Um, actually, when um, when we were finishing areas, we were applying a layer of that same pea gravel over it just to try and basically joint it and take out the little dips and hollows between the pebble pebbles or sorry between the cobbles um um when it was finished and I, I suppose there'll be an element of maintenance on that side of things by John in years to come just keeping that topped up and keeping them locked in place. That that was a question I was gonna ask what what is the maintenance you think might be required on this because I you are using this farmyard which I think is the best thing about this story is that it is a functioning farmyard you are bringing cattle in and out through this and it's it's working as as a farmyard and um, what kind of maintenance will be required for it like what is the lifespan you think it has at the minute um I I, I think with the nature of the stones being um tightly bedded together that um mm -hmm. it should certainly last lifetimes um obviously with something like that um the the users need to be conscious of what uh, goes across it um i wouldn't be suggesting someone tracks a, a 20 ton digger across it but mm -hmm. um nonetheless um i think it's it's a very solid um functional uh, piece of 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 a paving around the, around the farmyard and it should last a very long time to come and john then how how has it for yourself how has it stood up and oh yeah see? fantastic uh so far the first winter of, of animals been in there there's actually the animals would like it as in traveling on it it's very safe for animals there's a grip in the cobbles so we it's all cattle on our farm uh, and when they put their hooves down, they, they have a grip and they're not going to slip. So we're bringing in 
cows which are heavily pregnant to calve down in the different sheds around the yard. So you're on about a seven, eight hundred kilo animal, uh, heavily pregnant. So they're not going to be running, but they're going, they're going to need secure footing that they're not going to slip and maybe hurt themselves or, or you know, cause damage to to the unborn calf. Um, in turn, so from an animal animal perspective, it's been fantastic uh, over the first winter. In terms of maintenance, then obviously, so where it's a it's a working farmyard, so we've different agricultural produce going through there with hay and straw, which blow which blow away or blow around the place in the loose bits that are blowing. So there's a main ongoing maintenance, but it's the same as any yard that you to clean up after yourself essentially. So you know, and that type of loose hay and straw will gather, it'll gather in, in little pieces so it's easy to collect. Uh, leaves blowing in obviously you know, if you're left or left there, they're going to cause muck and grow weeds. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's just a, an ongoing cleaning and maintenance on a daily basis, especially over the wintertime. Over the summertime now, not so much. Um, there's not as much activity in there from a farming perspective because it's a quieter time of year. All the animals are out grazing. Um, we have our this year's crop of hay in the sheds already. So when we're transporting that in, Again, you had the loose debris of the hay and stuff going around. So we just swept that up after ourselves when we were done. Um, and yeah, and it's just it's just general, general house, mm-hmm. general maintenance. And just as as Rory was saying there, uh, when you're bringing, say, the hay and stuff in with the machinery, I'm guessing you come to a certain point and then you you transport yeah. by sort of hand trucks or anything like that so we're trying we're trying to use light machinery as much as possible okay so that's yeah. it we've a very old tractor on the farm which is lightweight uh, mm-hmm. and transfer box behind it when we're bringing in the hay so we did reverse the trailer in and mm-hmm. we stopped at the edge of the cobbles and just took the bales down from there uh, so we're trying to avoid putting any heavy traffic on the cobbles especially uh, the turning of a wheel or a vehicle which yeah. potentially as a wheel turns, it can cause a contour and potentially un- loosen maybe some of the cobbles or, you know, mm-hmm. cause a, a, a little bit of a friction on them. So we're very conscious about that. Uh, there is cars and their cars are generally fine mm-hmm. because obviously they're lighter weight and they're lower on the ground. It's, it's the weight is better dispersed on them, whereas the tractors are, you know, quite heavy. Um, and from that point of view, there's absolutely no issues. So. I'm very, very happy with it so far. Uh, one of the things I do like with there's absolutely no runoff of water. Then when we've had a lot of heavy rainfall over this winter, and if you have a concrete yard, you've like a river flowing. Yeah. With the cobbles, the rain just it naturally uh, drains through it. Uh, which is, you know, it's it's just a, a, an issue that you, you didn't want to have with them to be gathering water or want to be collecting running off the yard. And mm. uh, especially in terms of if you um with the environmental aspects of farming, you don't want uh, seepage or effluent or any of that sort of runoff of um uh, farming manures or anything that running off and running into river sources and like that. So you know it's it's very it's actually a very environmentally friendly uh surface for farming. Sounds very practical and probably the reason that it was there in the first place.
I have um, a question for Fergo going back to the glass scheme. If you could talk to us a little bit about the entire procedure that is necessary for the glass scheme, if you and John maybe have a project for the future or something else that has to be done on the farm here too. Um, yeah, as I said earlier, when I came to the project, um, John had done the initial application, I think it was online. So he he, he had, um, you know, he, he'd been prompted by the Heritage Council to maybe look at, at the, the cobbling in, in the in the courtyard following um the previous successful project on, on, on roofing. Um so when I came to him and John had you know provisional uh grant approval for, 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 for the funds, and then it was a matter of um agreeing the detail, I guess, with, with the Heritage Council. So at that point we did the original method statement and then we had a good bit of liaison with them and eventually kind of finalized it into the uh into the 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 approach that, that we described earlier. Um, so that was it. So, so there was the method statement was agreed, and then once the works started on site, we just kept in touch with them. So I think I dropped up a few times, and I forward kept kept in touch with um, photographs as the works progressed. But particularly when the when the initial um, section of the cobbles was was done, I got, got Rory to do like if you like a, 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 a the initial sample area. We took pictures of that, and we agreed the 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 pattern and the. If you like the 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 um the the, the overall sort of passion of, of the, the cobbles that we're we're achieving. Um so um that was it. And then once once the works were completed, we, we just did a, a kind of final stage reports and some photographs, and uh that was it, sort of job done. And the, the glass projects required to sorry, the glass game requires that the project is um open to the public, isn't it? And I read that you had like an open day last year. Are you planning on having more of these kind of open days where the public can come over and see? I saw it sponsored on your LinkedIn profile, and that's why I was thinking, like, if you were the point of contact. I think I think there was a condition in the grant approval that there be um, yeah some public engagement. So I think yeah. John organised an open day. Um, but maybe I don't know. We could, we could develop it into a little mini festival, maybe next year or something. <laughs> <laughs> A spa working group or something like that, you know. <laughs> we'll be on board immediately. <laughs> okay, Virgil, I like I know you as a conservation architect in and around Dublin. Um, have you done many projects like this yourself? Uh, like more farmyard, more rural, sort of vernacular type projects. Is it the first one you've done like this? And is it something you think you would you would continue to do more like this? Or hey, um. Yeah, I suppose I, I'm I'm mostly focused in 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 like I live in Dublin and a lot of the work I do is in city centre. But I, I like to have a variety of projects. And um, there was something very I think endearing about this job. Uh, like I suppose mm -hmm. one of the points I wanted to make was that um, it was a real project. I suppose it was it was a vernacular project in the true sense of the word. Insofar as we went through the materials, the stones came from the field, the gravel came from a local quarry in Carneros, Um as you said, you touched on it earlier, really important for vernacular buildings, if they can be kept in their original use. I think when mm -hmm. we try and adapt buildings from, you know, a vernacular outbuilding to a A-rated house or something, it's really forcing the structure to do something that it was never intended for. So mm -hmm. I think the, there was the, this project, I mean, the local materials, there was the, the local contractor. Um, it was driven by the, the family who had obviously been on this land for, 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 for generations. Um, 
you know, I, I think there was something very um, interesting about that, I mean, the, the whole um, backstory to it and the approach and I think the collaboration and, and, and all that. So it, it was a, it was an enjoyable, I must say it was, it was a small, but it was a very enjoyable project. And yeah, we, we did scratch our heads at the beginning of it and all that. But I think as it went on, I mean, I think the answers you often find on a project, the answers kind of present themselves to you. So um, what seems kind of a bit sort of, no, daunting is maybe too strong a word, but you're just in kind of new territory, and um, you know the thing evolved, and I think it, it it worked out great, and it's got a huge kind of reception on social media and everything else. Yeah, I think particularly working with these type of buildings, I think that that is sort of the approach that you need to have, really. Uh, like you're going, I think an awful lot of people come to these sort of types of houses, and they they tend to be, we'll say, more simple, but more simply built and I think they come with the idea that oh we're going to do this to it and then you scratch the surface and maybe that's just generally old buildings in general and you realize that it's not that way you sort of have to to change to suit it um I am curious to know if there are other things happening on the farmyard in the in the future if there's a plan for mm -hmm. I don't know like I know John you've done the 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 uh the roofs already and the cobbles uh now what what's next? Well, I think we're going to just take a step back for the moment and uh, <laughs> kind of just enjoy what we've achieved so far. Um, yeah. In terms of the yard, it's been an absolute blessing that it's been so well maintained over the years. Um, that the, the, all the buildings have been whitewashed on a, an annual or a very regular basis, if not annually. Um, you know that there's never been any storm damage to any kind of trees or structures that were maybe close to the yard that were potentially would have caused damage has been removed and it's has its own space um, and um, has been very 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 well maintained to a very high standard over the 150 plus years um, and when you have a structure or a yard like that that's it doesn't take much to keep it in that condition. Um, yeah. And I know you're keen for me to say, well, I'd like to go and do something else. But I think for the moment, I'd like to just keep everything as it was and try and maintain it as well as it's been maintained before it's been passed on to my hands. I think that's the best answer you could yeah, give because an awful lot of times people want to get in there and do stuff that maybe isn't entirely necessary and they're, they're sort of changing things. And when it, it, it really is the, just the general maintenance of buildings that really keeps yeah. them, like you said, just regular, careful maintenance will, yeah. will keep them in great condition. And it's just forgetting to fix a roof in time or, yeah, repair a wall or whatever, you know, that's the yeah. kind of thing that causes damage when it's left over time. And even since uh, we've completed the yard, like several people have come over to you know, to see the see what the, the project involved and, and see how it turned out. And on new times people have said to me it would be lovely now if you converted these into accommodation or Airbnb and B and all this. And I know one thing that I'll never do is attempt to put them into residential accommodation. And I can say that hand on heart for my lifetime. Yeah. Uh, I'll never do that. So um and I think that would absolutely ruin them. And if you just go back to what Fergal said there is You'd be forcing the building to become an airtight uh, yeah. residential premises or whatever you want to call it, uh, chalets or whatever. 
and yeah. going completely against the whole original concept of what they're supposed to be. One of the one of the nicest things about the buildings is they're self-breeding and with the, the air vents that's in them. There's a wind blowing through in there, there's absolutely zero atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And you look at a modern building, it does not heat on it in the wintertime, it soaks in dampness. Yeah. The, the, the buildings breed naturally. The, all the ingredients that's in them, the, the, the lime water, it's, it's all breedable. Mm-hmm. The, the, the roofs have no felt on them. So we've a yard full of um, boards. What's the, I can't even think of them now. The, uh, no, no, no. The, uh, the ones that come from Africa. Oh, swallows. Oh, the swallows. birds. Swallows, yeah. I have it. A dozen swallows, I'd say, and now they're young, are coming out flying around the yard. And, you know, it's just such, it's such a natural concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really the buildings inside, they nearly maintain themselves. And outside, mm-hmm. you line wash them and protect them from the weather and to look after themselves. Could you tell us a bit about the buildings? Because I've seen the pictures in in the uh, the article that we saw, and you you told us there the different the different um, functions, like all the different sheds you have and the different things. Yeah. But, uh, what what are the buildings themselves made of? And they are lime mortar, clay mortar. Uh, yeah. So the stone, I would imagine, is the local traditional field stone, um, okay. and they use the best of it, uh, bedded in uh, lime mortar, which. I'd imagine it's it's mostly sand and a little bit of lime, uh, roofed with. I'm not sure what the timber is, but it's probably a pine or a, a very old, strong hardwood, and slated with the fantastic blue banger slate. Um, and that's that's really it. We lime washed them on the on the the front side, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Historically, they would actually be lime washed inside as well. So that hasn't been done in a long time. Um, and on the exterior, uh, on the, kind of the back sides, I suppose you could say, wouldn't mm-hmm. have been washed in a long, long time. Um, and possibly that's that's probably one thing I need to take, consider, and maybe that's one thing I would maybe do with them, is mm-hmm. to like wash them completely and on the inside as well. But my knowledge of that would be very limited. and. I'd like to educate myself a little bit better before I'd even go about doing any of that. I have, since I've been young, myself and dad have been lime washing the outside room and we've been doing that successfully. But mm-hmm. one of the things with lime washing is with lots of rain and frost, it just flakes off. Yeah. Um, uh, I'd like to educate myself a lot better on how we can do that more successfully and how we maybe would do the inside and the, the back sides as well. Uh, in the near future. Rory's going to jump in there with a response. Yeah, just to add, just add to that, like the, the guys have done a very good job in maintaining it over the years. Like any of the maintenance and, and repairs that have been done have been done very sensitively, considering the the, the nature of the building. Like too often we see people and they go at a, a building repointing it with sand and cement, thinking that they're doing a great job and solidifying the yeah. building to you for years to come. And it's the exact opposite and that's where so many of us are involved in trying to reverse what was done before so you know, the guys have done an excellent job in, in maintaining them and, and probably doing in a way as little as is necessary but at the same time what is necessary yeah. to as much as is needed but as little as necessary yeah 
I have a last question for uh, John. Um, you seem to know a lot of uh, an awful lot about buildings and building traditions. Um, do you work full time on your farm, or do you have like another job? <laughs> And we didn't ask you before, and I know I don't know if I'm being nosy. Like you can refuse to answer, but not at all. No, uh, you know, I'm full time on the farm, but I work two days uh, a week as a, a financial accountant in a, a private practice. Okay. Uh, so I'm there every day, and that's when I say every day. That's seven days. But for for two of the seven, I do I do uh, fifteen hours a week uh, as an accountant. So. Her play. And um, my dad, Maliki, he's there seven days a week as well. Well, six and a half. We only do a little bit of a Sunday, but so it's, it's a bit like maintaining the building, as little as yes. necessary, um, but it's still necessary. And uh, yeah, we'd be there every other day. So. Okay. Thanks. I have just one more question before you, before you get on to final questions, Livia. Um, you were saying there about the locals, people, you know, saying you should turn it into an Airbnb. Do and you were talking as well about how you know it was meant a lot to sort of the older generation to see it. Do you feel like this project has had an influence on any of the people around you on other farms that they might uh, be thinking of applying for the gloss for the grant or doing similar type of works to their own farmyards? Yes, we've uh, one down the road uh, and literally down the road, less than a mile away, um, and. They've undergone a huge project of uh, reinstating their farmhouse and they're reinventing all their courtyard around it. It was in a lot, it had deteriorated a lot over the years, wasn't properly maintained. Uh, I, I'm unsure whether it would be on the traditional farm buildings grant route, but I, I imagine that's in their thought, train of thought. And um, they have visited recently just to see what we've done and how it compares to Dairy Yard, which is less than a mile away. Mm -hmm. And I imagine in another year or two, probably two years, probably two years away from getting to that stage, that they will look to do a very similar job. Um, very nice. And then we had one visitor from uh, the opposite end of County Mead, from Balnebracchi, which is down in South Mead on the... Uh, Awfully border, uh, and the then two farmers came came up and visit our yard, and they have a similar type project that they're interested in in, in doing. They were of an elder generation, probably in their seventies, and their probably only limitation that they would have is maybe having the energy or the resources to go about, uh, mm. you know, obtaining the stone and stuff like that. But I'd like I'd like to hear uh, more from them if, if they are going to end that route. Even though we could talk about it all night, possibly, yeah, uh, we'll move on. questions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll move on to the final question. So we'll ask two questions. I will ask one, and then Roshan will follow, and maybe we'll try and keep it as short as possible. Um, the question I'm going to ask you is, what one thing do you think can be done to improve the situation for vernacular buildings in Ireland? And I don't know who wants to start and then each one of you will follow. I can start if you want. Uh, yeah, um, perfect. I suppose I think we need exemplar projects like this 
um, we need people like John um, who want to sort of lead up these projects or, you know, initiate them. I need people like Rory who are, you know, contractors who are familiar with traditional techniques, you know, traditional with the, particularly if they're, if they're um, related to the area. And, and obviously Rory had a good feeling for, you know, the type of way this would have been done sort of, um, you know, not, not just traditionally, but locally as well. Um, I think these kind of projects, when they're done, they're, they're really beautiful and they kind of, they're very evocative and they, they, they kind of capture people and draw them in. Like I think vernacular buildings in a way have their own beauty. That's, it's not a, it's not like a style like way Palladianism or Victorian styles yeah. were imported into Ireland, if you like, or I mean, they gravitated from, from Europe. Like I think the Irish vernacular traditional is an aesthetic um, that's, it's homegrown. It's about local materials. Um, you know, it's about sort of simple ways of building, but they they are very evocative when they're done and they're done right. And I think, you know, I think this this project is is case in point where um, something that was you know quite a simple thing really doing a bit of cobbling really sort of captured people's imagination and has got a has got an incredible response. Yeah, um, I suppose it's been a wide varying point, but I think there needs to be more kind of protection um, of what's there already and more encouragement. Um, even from a national and local level in terms of county councils and planning commissions in terms of even a basic Irish vernacular like the cottage. Mm-hmm. You see, you drive on country roads or in the com- anywhere in the country and you'll see derelict cottages are just falling away and there's yeah. serious lack of appetite to you know, put life back into that cottage. And, um, just maintenance. Maintenance, but even what I'd love to see was that cottage being given to new hands and someone to put a family home in there and allow them to, you know, to build on possibly like a modern extension to the back, but to still showcase the, the cottage to the front and all of that type of stuff. And one thing that kind of annoys me with county councils and planning commission and stuff like that is you can build a brand new, totally lovely modern structure and then neglect the, traditional type of Irish home that might be even only across the road. Uh, And that's kind of a sad thing to see. And that can only come from national and local level. And there's a lack of appetite there to to implement that. There is a growing appetite, I think. But yeah, Mm -hmm. I think we need definitely need to see more of what you're saying like that. There is um, the Department of Heritage have released a vernacular strategy, which is setting out to try and take care and maintain and hand on or sort of give a new life to these buildings and not by just patching them up and making them like, you know, oh, we're going to restore them to how they used to be. But in careful maintenance, like you're saying, and gentle rehabilitation and just trying to give them new life and to keep them relevant, like the way you are with your farmyard. I think, as Virgo said, the, the project is really an exemplar project of everything we could hope for. We'd love to see, I'd love to see more projects like yours going on around the country. What about Rory? Um, I suppose just to kind of add on to what John was saying, I, I would agree, like it's, I would certainly have noticed in me, and I'm sure it's the case across the country where people buy sites with a building on it in order to get planning permission. But more often than not, or too often, it's a case that the intention is to just demolish what's there and start from scratch. And mm. I, I, I 
I don't know the ins and outs of the grant systems and all the funds and the the, the whole approach to it, but um, you would certainly hope that there would be an element of more carrot, less stick to try and encourage people to to use these mm-hmm. buildings because once they're gone, they're gone. And yeah. if there is a real charm to these vernacular buildings, like there's there's the they're they're quite unique, and uh, it's a shame to see them just bulldozed and something new and modern put in its place. Yeah, well said. Yeah, I know there's the vacant houses scheme that is that they they've launched this year. I mean, on the one hand, it's wonderful that they're they're giving money to people to, you know, live in houses, and there's certain rules to it which I like, which is you have to be planning to live in the building for ten years, and they're prioritizing people who's for first time home. But one of the things that I find worrying about it is what you're saying. There's no protection for the actual building. You can do whatever you want to it, mm-hmm. um, and they will give you the money first. So. I think it's a good first step, but yeah, I think all, no, just, all very good answers. <laughs> Sorry, go on, Fergo. So I could just add to exactly what you're saying there. And I think there, there's some really bad examples being promoted on RT and some of the various retrofit yeah. programs and so yeah. on. Like there's some awful stuff being done. And, you know, it's it's sort of mildly questioned, but at the end of the program, it's always a happy ending, if you like. And, you know, there's some some really, I think, on, on, on um, insensitive and inappropriate things being promoted on yeah. television. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. Sure. We'll hop on to the final question and we'll come back to John when he arrives back, um, which is what is your favourite vernacular building? Um, to be honest, I don't have a favourite. Um <laughs> It's a common answer. <laughs> don't worry, yeah. a lot of people don't. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I suppose what I'd say on that is, uh, as a child, I remember going to grandparents' houses in the countryside and mm-hmm. being out in outhouses like John has in Carnaross and playing and climbing and exploring and doing all the things that you shouldn't be doing in, in these buildings. But um it's it's the the general sense of these villains that that that's what I love about them because there's something close to the heart with these things. It's uh, it's yeah, it's something very natural. You feel mm-hmm. grounded with them. So no, I wouldn't say that I have a favorite, but uh, I I I like the older buildings, especially like the likes of farm outhouses because. You, you see little details in them that are, are local to the area and were probably passed down through generations and they were using what they had at their disposal and the detail worked and it just carried on throughout the years. So um, little quirks like that, things that you spot, something different, the way like the, the pot logs are formed or the way the lintel is put over the door, things like that. It's just little unique nuances that, uh, that that's what I like about them. You're saying that and it's reminded me I, I did something similar, like playing in um, my grandparents' farmyard and yeah, they had an old um, hay barn or something similar. And I'm wondering if it is the fact that these outhouses tend to be not adapted as much as like the farmhouses, like farmhouses mm. get adapted, they, you know, modernize, things are done to them. Whereas when you have the, the particularly these kind of uh, farm buildings, they tend to be as little as necessary, <laughs> or as yeah, much as needed, a... as little as necessary. So you, you, but you see a lot more of the history and the original features of it, and it's it's more charming. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's a kind of consistency amongst them, even though they're all independently individual. But uh, yeah, the fact that they haven't been tampered with, like the, yeah. so often they're they're dirty and dusty and full of rubbish and whatnot, but. Yeah, it's, uh, dream. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But uh, 
yeah, the, the fact that so often they haven't tampered with the, there's a familiarity with them. Good answer. Fergal, do you want to fire on? Yeah, I suppose if I can be just not specific, but um, I I grew up in Dublin, but my parents are from South Leitrim, from two places called Alvas and Clillan Mall. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of grew up in the seventies of fond memories of being up and down to Leitrim to relations, and they were all grow. They were lots of them were living, still living in vernacular houses at the time, and obviously as the eighties went on, a lot of them were replaced with modern bungalows. But um, yeah, we had relations who lived in the typical kind of three-room cottage and you go in and there's the aga and the, the dresser with the plates and cups on it and all that kind of stuff. But there was a sense of, um, it was more a sense of the culture, I think, and that, as yeah. well as the building. It was a slowness and there was lots of time to talk and discuss and everything else. So um, I have memories of that. And my I think my maternal grandfather could touch and he, you know, he did, they were farming and they were in their spare time, then they were maintaining their houses. So it was again, it was the there was the, the the vernacular, it was the the, the living culture of them um farming and then minding their buildings. Um but that I suppose that's that's my, the childhood memories. And I suppose more recently, just professionally, um about 10 years ago, I was in a place called Whitestown in County Louth, and um I didn't know much about it before I was there, but it's it's an incredible intact clock and village. Um it's near Green or Carlingford, that direction. And um, we did I did a small bit of work there for something. And it's incredibly picturesque. Again, it's it's a series of clustered kind of farm buildings. Some of them are gable on to the road and some of them are, you know, parallel to the road. And they create a really, really interesting little settlement. Um, I think their claim to fame is that Joe Biden's ancestors are from that particular village. So <laughs> right. but I don't. I think probably it was a good thing that it didn't feature on the sort of television coverage because it <laughs> it might get swamped. But um, yeah. that's it's, it's a really impressive little um, clock and village. It's it's not something I was aware of that was prevalent or you know uh, on the east coast of Ireland. I, I would always associate clockens with west of the Shannon, but um, it's well worth a, it's well worth driving through it if you're up that part of the world. Very good. I hadn't heard of that before. I'll, I'll definitely look it up. Yeah. And I, I have to say, I think what you said before, that vernacular is not a style imposed on a building, but it's just it's something that is kind of embedded into the building itself is just um, it's a fantastic way. to. I had never thought about it that way. And from an architectural point of view, it's exactly spot on because for me being from Italy, um, we, I had this conversation a long time ago with Roshin. There is Technically, in Italy, there is no vernacular architecture. Mm -hmm. And what is vernacular actually has become, has been turned into a style because it has been limited to such a specific area that now it's just, it's a style and Mm. has has completely uh, devoided the, the buildings, the nature of the buildings of what they were meant to be. And this is here in Ireland and it should be preserved like nothing else sorry it's just I derailed <laughs> but I just had to say it because it, it was just it was enlightening the way it was said and I appreciate it thanks um John uh we we were asking uh what is your favorite vernacular building and I I can probably guess yours <laughs> <laughs> well my favorite one would obviously be a personal one with the, the farm courtyards um yeah. but I would be a big fan of the Thatch Cottage as well mm-hmm. um, kind of reiterates um, Fergal's point of just it's the setting and kind of the culture of the people that there's loads of time to sit there with the 
smoky coal fire and tell stories and you know drink tea and, and all of that and um, you know and even to go around the country and even to some of like the, the touristy spots where you would go into that type of cottage it's nice just to go in there and, and relax and you know remember go back in that time yeah 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 I think that's that's something with so many like I grew up in Ashburn other side of me uh you know based in like in and around Dublin always but you know I have memories of being in those in like my grandparents house and I think most people in Ireland have these have this experience that of being in their grandparents house like this and it is yeah like you said it's it's your own personal history and the culture and remembering that feeling because yeah it doesn't translate to the to the places we live today, I guess, so much. That's a bit of a glum note to end on, but um, yeah, they're all really good answers, but we will have to leave it there. I think we've, we've already kept you over long. Thank thanks you guys. Thanks for, Thank thanks you. for organizing it. It was a great, uh, it's great to get the, great to get this, I guess, I suppose to, to bring it to, to people and explain it in this way. Okay, thanks so much guys. Have Thank a good evening. Thank you. Have a good evening. Thanks, bye-bye. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed this chat with John, Rory and Fergal. If you'd like to find more about them, the project and the work they do, you can reach John on his personal mobile number 086 0619160. And we have posted Rory and Fergal's details in the show notes, along with other articles about the project and other useful resources mentioned in today's episode. Next week, we'll be talking to the County Offaly Architectural Conservation Officer, Rachel McKenna, about some of the details of her new book, Traditional Architecture in Offaly, History, Materials and Furniture from the 1800s to present day. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to give us feedback or ideas about future guests or topics, please give us a review and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts previously iTunes, Spotify, or whatever podcast app you use. We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to help us in our quest to protect Irish vernacular and built heritage in any way, do consider getting in touch. We'd particularly love to hear from anyone who knows about vernacular buildings under threat that our casework team will be able to help out with. Or if you yourself have a couple of hours to spare every month and are interested in joining our team, we could really do with volunteers to help spread the word and preserve our heritage. You can reach out to us and find out more about SPAB Ireland and the work we do on social media at SPAB Ireland on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, or check out our website, which we will post in the show notes. As ever, many thanks to the Heritage Council for generously supporting this podcast under the Heritage Capacity Fund 2023. And thanks to our editor, Graham Baldwin, and the rest of the team at SPAB Ireland and SPAB HQ. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to tell your friends. Go Dian Kedorella. Slán. Mm-hmm.